number 266. where we're starting this morning, but if you go all the way down to the last verse, there is a chorus, a song chorus made out of those words. Do you know this song? It goes like this. They that wait. 
shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to We are back in 1 Peter. We're at the very end of chapter 1. We're going to get into chapter 2 this morning, which means that you can turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. In the next part of Peter, at the end of chapter 1, going into chapter 2, Peter is going to emphasize two things. He's going to emphasize the importance, the primacy, the centrality of the Word of God. And if we agree on anything here at GCA, we agree that the Word of God is important. We spend all our time, it seems like, just concentrating on the Word of God. All we do on Sundays and Wednesdays is Bible study because we want to know what the Word of God is. And God has revealed himself. This is the mode, this is the method that he has chosen to reveal himself to his creatures through his word. Whether that's his written word, whether that's his spoken word, whether that's the incarnate word. It is through his word that we know anything about God. Peter is going to say this morning that it is through the very word of God that we are the translation that I have, the NASB, says that we are born again through the Word of God. Even though he doesn't use the word that Jesus used in John 3 when he talked about you must be born again, that was born anothen, born from above, Peter is going to use a word, anaganao, carried again. It's born, B-O-R-N-E. It's like the way your mother bears you. Well, that kind of bearing again is what has to happen. But that word, that anaganao that I just mentioned, has that G-E-N root to it, the same G-E-N root that has moved into the English language and given us words like generate and generation and genesis. And so the root of the word, the basis of the word that Peter uses is generate, and he has the ana prefix on it, which means again. In other words, you need to be regenerated. And he's going to say that we're regenerated by the Word of God. That's the importance that he places on the Word of God. You have to know the Word of God. You have to hear the Word of God. You have to read the Word of God in order to really have a fully orbed, fully rounded Christianity and understanding of the God we serve. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave it at... Know the Word of God, learn the Word of God, be born again through the Word of God. He also is going to concentrate on love of the brethren. And he's going to combine those two ideas. Years ago, I was up at Main Street, and my friend Keelan Atkinson was preaching on speaking the truth in love. And he made a statement that I've just never forgotten. He said that if you merely speak the truth, but you don't do it in love, 
that can become a form of tyranny because you can use the truth to batter people. You can use the truth to hammer people with until you've driven them down. If you're going to speak God's truth to people, you have to do it with the appropriate love that accompanies the reality of who God is and how loving it was of him to reveal himself to us. He was under no obligation to tell us the first thing about himself. But he revealed himself to us as a matter of grace and a matter of love. And therefore it is incumbent upon us when we speak God's truth to make sure that we represent him as the God of grace and love. And so we need to speak the truth in love. And here again, Peter is going to combine those two ideas. Now, I just said here again because this is a concept that permeates the New Testament. Whether it's Jesus talking to those that are his own and saying that he loved them so much that he would sacrificially give his life for them and take the curse of God in their place. Or whether it's Paul writing about speaking the truth in love. Whether it's throughout the New Testament, John, John's epistles. That's why he's known as the apostle of love. And yet we learn more doctrine from him than we do the other gospel writers. So doctrine, the teaching of doctrine, the teaching of God's word, vitally important. Doing it in love, vitally important. You can't take the two apart. You can't say, I love the saints of God, but I don't know anything about the word. Because then you're going to have an errant Christianity. You're going to have an errant concept of who God is and what he's about. But you also can't say, I preach the truth of God and the doctrine of God and I know everything about God and I'm going to tell you all that stuff without the appropriate love because that can and often does become a form of tyranny. And so it's really important and you're going to see again how Peter combines those two concepts. Now, the reason that we're starting the morning in Isaiah 40 is that Peter is also going to say that all flesh is grass and as decked out and as well-dressed as we may be, we're just like the flower of the grass. And the sun comes out and the wind rises against it and then the flower fades and then the grass dies and it withers away and the wind blows it away and Peter says, that all of human life is exactly like that. Well, he gets that concept from Isaiah 40. So we're going to read Isaiah 40 this morning because I thought, well, I can't just read that verse. I'm going to read a little bit of the surrounding stuff, and then a little bit of the surrounding stuff became the first half of the chapter, and then I said, well, I can't just do the first half of the chapter. So we're going to do the whole chapter. We're going to read all of Isaiah this morning, (laughs) and then we're going to start at Genesis 1. That's the pl- so. so we're going to read Isaiah 40 just so that we understand this concept again. When you're reading the New Testament, understand that the New Testament authors and writers are constantly quoting their scripture, which is what we call the Old Testament. They are constantly commenting on and getting their theology from the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, you wouldn't have the fully orbed theology of the New Testament. And so, notice again how Peter, knowing Isaiah as well as he does, and knowing the Psalms as well as he does, notice how 
easily he brings that into his New Testament theology and shows that yet again, God doesn't change. God's perspective on people doesn't change. And there are no people on the planet who get to rise up and say, I'm important. I'm the important one. If it weren't for me, there'd be no... All flesh is grass. Jesus walked around saying, without me, you can do nothing. You go back to the book of Daniel and you read that God does whatever he wants. That the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And God does all his will among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the concept remains consistent. God is absolutely sovereign. God is on his throne. God is doing whatever pleases him all the time. Whatever is happening is what he is pleased to have happen on his planet because it all redounds to his glory and the glory of his son. And human beings can't stop that tidal wave of God's will accomplishing whatever God's will wants to do because human beings are referred to throughout the Bible as grass and as worms. So, so far, wormy grass. That's all you've got going for you. And even your best righteousnesses are filthy rags. You've got nothing you can take before God. God has to be good to you. He has to be gracious to you or you've got nothing. And if you know that, if you feel that, if you understand that, that you are depraved and you are sinful and God was really good and really gracious to you, how can you not be good and gracious to other people, especially other people who belong to God? Amen. You got that? Yes. Speak the truth but do it in love. Let's read Isaiah 40. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice where Isaiah put the authority. The glory of God is going to be revealed and all flesh is going to see it. Why? Why is he confident that's going to happen? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The word of God. As soon as the word of God goes forward, that is a sure guarantee. That's a promise. God can't turn away from his word. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is consistent. He is going to perform whatever it is he has decided and spoken. And so Isaiah puts the authority right where Peter is going to put the authority on the word of God. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. By the way, people ask me, why do I have so much confidence that Christ is actually going to return at some point and gather his church and take us to meet him in the air and so will we ever be with the Lord? Because he said so. 
That's the answer. That's always the answer. That's the word of God. Why do I believe that there are heavenly residences made by Jesus? He returned to his father's house so that he could make many dwelling places so that where he is, we can also be. Why am I so confident of that? Because he said so. Because he said that's what he's going to do. Why am I so confident that this world is going to burn and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? Why am I convinced that's going to happen? Because he said so. We've seen so many of these things come true. We've seen so many of these things come true. But my confidence that it's all going to happen is not because I've seen the things come true. My confidence is because he said it. And because he said it, it's got to happen. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? So here's the very word of God. Here is God saying, call out. Make this widely known. Broadcast this. Well, this must be really important then. What is this important thing you have to tell us? What shall I call out? Say, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, generation after generation, person after person, people group after people group have come and gone here on planet Earth. But the word remains. When you're reading the Old Testament here, you're reading stuff that reaches back 3,600 years. And people have come and gone. And people have handled the word and interpreted the word and preached the word. And people, when they've done their bit on the planet, have died and, and they're gone. And they faded away just like the grass. But the word of God goes on. It's still the word of God. And for whatever reason that nobody can explain, generation after generation, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how many computers, no matter how much access to the internet and the access to the collective wisdom of the world, no matter how much of that we get, people, for whatever reason, cannot turn away from the Bible. We might have it in electric form. We might have it on our phones and iPads, but it's still the word of God. And then because it's the word of God, something really interesting happens with it. People who read it, who study it, who spend time in it, it changes them. Now, I've read a lot of books in my life. I've got shelves full of books. And I've got a lot of books you could say to me, have you read that? I'd say, yeah. Are you going to read it again? Nope. I read it. Because I've read it, don't need to read it again. And yet I read my Bible every day. I read passages that I've read 30, 40 times. And then I read it, and it says something quick and alive. Something I needed to know right now. Something that got me through that day, that hour, that moment. 
Only the Word of God does that. And because it's the Word of God, it is quick and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a very strange thing. This book fascinates me because it does things that no other book can do. And so it is the very Word of God that stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his rewards are with him and his recompense before him. By the way, at this moment, would you call Jerusalem the bearer of good news? No. Kind of a problem spot right now on the planet, isn't it? We can't even put the U.S. Embassy there without all kinds of political ramifications all over the planet because Jerusalem is not the bearer of good news at the moment. But at some point, God has promised and continues to promise and promises repeatedly that he is going to establish Jerusalem again and that David's greater son is going to rule from Jerusalem and that that's the place where his name has always been. It's going to reside there and the countries of the Gentiles are all going to flow to Jerusalem. And that as God pours out blessings on Jerusalem, those blessings are then going to trickle down, if you don't mind the phrase trickle down, keep your economic ideas to yourself, that those blessings are going to trickle down to the nations because God is going to bless Jerusalem. Hasn't happened yet. Why would we believe that? Because it says so. Because it's in the book. Because it's the word of God which remains forever. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? A nice poetic phrase there that says, all the waters of the world. Remember, the world is made up primarily of water. Oceans, seas, rivers, lakes, the vast majority of the surface of the earth is water. So Isaiah comes up with something that covers the planet and says, even with the planet covered in water, it fits in the hollow of the hand of God. That's how majestic God is. And who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens by a span? In other words, who could get up there with a ruler and measure the heavens? He says, God does that. God knows how big it is. And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, by the scale. He has calculated the dust, the dirt of planet earth. And the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the Spirit of God or as his counselor have informed him? It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? The, the question is, whoever gave God advice? As if God one day got some advice and went, oh, good thinking, I never thought of that. It's good that you were here, Todd, to tell me that. I wouldn't have figured that out myself. So the question is, who has ever directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or 
who has ever been his counselor and informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? In other words, God has always had understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and the knowledge and the wisdom that we have has to have flowed from him to us. And none of us ever brought knowledge or wisdom to him. Why? Because we're grass. Because we're wormy grass. Who has directed the Spirit of God? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Are you familiar with the forests of Lebanon? I'm not talking about the ones in Tennessee. The cedars of Lebanon. When David built his house, he had cedars brought in from Lebanon because the forests of Lebanon were so thick and the wood was so good. So now Isaiah says, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor are all the beasts nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. In other words, if you took the entire forest of Lebanon, all that good wood, and all of the beasts that are inside it, and you made a burnt offering for God, that wouldn't begin to suffice for the glory of God. We can't sacrifice enough. We can't glorify God enough. We can't reach the point where we think, I'm good. I've done all I'm supposed to do. I'm all prayed up. I've done all my giving. I'm I'm good. Me and God, we got a real good thing. No, we cannot do enough. Even the Lebanon forest and all the beasts in it are not enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter, in other words, that will not fall over. Do you know have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Okay, so now we're grassy, wormy grasshoppers. And look at the way he puts it. Have you not known that? Have you not understood that? Don't you know that from the foundation of the world that all the inhabitants of earth are like grasshoppers? Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely they have planted, scarcely they have sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. 
and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not a one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of the Lord? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary." That's the end of Isaiah's introduction, and you know the rule. If it's Isaiah, it doesn't count against Isaiah's time. That's the new rule. That's, never mind. Turn to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start at verse 22. Now, when he gets to the quotes from Isaiah, you're going to understand where they came from. He didn't just make these ideas up out of whole cloth. He is emphasizing the necessity and the centrality of the word of God, and he's demonstrating that by quoting from the very Word of God. So his theology, his ideas, are all coming out of the Word of God. Verse 22, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now look where he placed the necessity of love here. He said, you have in obedience to the truth because you're being obedient to the truth. May I put it another way? Because you're being obedient to the doctrine that is taught by God in the Bible. Because you're being obedient to the teaching of the truth, you have a sincere love for the brethren. That's what it is to be obedient to the truth. And in so doing, you have actually purified your souls. In other words, even if you knew all of the truth, all of the doctrine, Paul argues, if I know everything, I have perfect knowledge and I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have all truth and all knowledge but don't have love, I'm just a banging gong and a tinkling cymbal and just nothing. I'm nothing if I don't have the love that purifies the Christian soul. And then, once you have that, then there's a place for the truth of the teaching and the doctrine because it's being presented in a God-type fashion, which is a gracious, long-suffering sort of fashion. And so he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere 
love of the brethren. Now, the first love of the brethren there is the word Philadelphia right there. It's the combination of philos and adelphos, which is brother. And so by combining those two words, Philadelphia, that's translated as brotherly love. But then he says, fervently love, and he says, agapao. Fervently love one another from the heart. This is really interesting that Peter has reached this point because whenever we read about the love of God, it is virtually never phileo. It is agapao. It is the agape love of God, which I have defined time and time again as sacrificial love. Now, you may recall that after Jesus died and resurrected, Peter said to the other apostles, well, I go a-fishing. And the others went with him, and they went back to their job. They went out fishing. And somebody was standing on the shore and said to them, children, do you have any meat? They said, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. He said, throw the net out on the other side, and you will catch something. And they did it. And there were too many fish to haul the net back into the boat. And Peter figures out it's the Lord. And so he comes to the shore and Jesus is frying up fish. So it was never about fish. The story was never about fish. He had fish. The story was about teaching them how to be fishers of men and how to obediently do what he says to do. So he's having a conversation with Peter. Peter has three times denied Jesus. Just like Jesus predicted, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, Peter can't get to Jesus at that point. Once Jesus had died, resurrected, had gone, well, then it was impossible for Peter to get to Jesus to make things okay again. He had denied Jesus, his Lord, who then resurrected again. Peter can't get to him. So Jesus comes to Peter in an act of grace and love. And he asks him three times. Now, in all our translations, you're going to read, he asked him three times, do you love me? But if you read it in the Greek, and Steve, I think if he's got his Greek polyglot back there, can correct me, the first time that Jesus says, do you love me? He says, do you agape? Do you agapao me? Will you love me self-sacrificially? Peter answers, you know that I phileo you. So Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus asks him again, do you love me? Do you agapao me? Peter answers, you know that I do phileo you. Jesus asks the third time, do you phileo me? And the next thing you read is Peter wept. Because Peter saw Jesus step down to where he was and say, do you phileo me, then feed my sheep. Here's Peter, after the fact, saying, you purify your souls by your brotherly love, but now on top of that, fervently, self-sacrificially, now love each other the way Christ loved you, the way Christ loved me, the way Christ came and restored me. Now you go do the self-sacrificial work that demonstrates how much you love each other. 
Self-sacrificial love is the very essence of the Christian heart and the Christian soul. It is the process of purifying your soul because you're reflecting the love of Christ through you to other people. That's where Peter places it. That's the importance of love. Now, let me say one more quick thing. It's kind of standard operating procedure these days that when people say love, because we throw the word love around pretty easily, you know, we'll say, I love my daughter, I love my wife, I love pizza. You know, and... (laughs) Now, I didn't just equate them all, (laughs) but but you get the idea. We're just stuck with this word love. And so when we say the word love, people have a tendency to just add whatever emotion to that they think that's speaking of. Love in our modern world is a feeling, a fleeting feeling. I love you today, I may not love you tomorrow. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about a decision of the mind, a determination of the will. He's talking about loving somebody self-sacrificially, not based on feelings, based on the love of God who loved you and loves you forever, even when you are unlovable. So therefore, demonstrate that kind of love for those that you love. It's not a feeling. It's It's not based on the whims of your feelings. You know that I've said so many times, Your feelings lie to you. The best demonstration I can think of is, has anybody here seen Old Yeller? Man, when the music swells and the gun goes off, there's not a dry eye in the place. But at the movie theater, when Old Yeller was showing in the movie theater, he was going to die again in two hours. But if you just happen to be at that showing... When the music swelled and the gun went off, you welled up with feelings, even though you knew that's not true. They didn't really kill a dog just then. They didn't really, old Yeller's still fine and dandy and living in Hollywood somewhere. (laughs) Big mansion, doghouse of his own, he's fine, he's doing good. And we know that. We know walking in, this is a movie, but it'll get us, it'll catch us, it'll put a lump in our throat. Why? Because our feelings lie to us. Because even though we know it's not true, we still feel it. Okay, self-sacrificial God-type love is not based on fleeting feelings that lie to you. Self-sacrificial love is based on the reality that God so loved you that he sent his son for you, and God doesn't change. God is not altering his plan. God forever loved you as a determination of his will, his own good pleasure. So he placed his love on you. And then he says, now you do it. Now you go and love the brethren that way. When you love the brethren, you love them sacrificially. So Peter can write, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love, agapao, one another from the heart. For if you have been born again, that's the word I mentioned early, this anaganao, if you have been regenerated, for you have been reborn not of seed which is perishable, 
but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. Through the very living, strong, active, vital Word of God, through the knowledge of the Word, through the reading of the Word, through the hearing of the Word, through imbibing and tasting the Word and ingesting the Word, through all of that, you are being actively reborn, regenerated. Here, I'll make it easy. How many of you have ever been in the midst of the darkness of your soul, the difficulties of life, you just don't know if you know anymore? You don't know what you believe or why you believe it. It's just, you just, it's tough. It's hard to get through this life. I use the phrase frequently, life beats a man to death. And you're in the middle of that battle and, and you just, you don't know anymore. How many of you have ever turned to the Word of God, read something from the Word of God, and it's given you the strength to get up and go through another day? It, yeah, Absolutely. It gives you the strength to say, all right, God is still on his throne. He still knows what he's doing. I don't know a lot right now. I don't know what's going on in my life right now. I don't know what I don't know. But what I do know is that God is on his throne, and I'm finding that out from the word. God is still faithful, and the word regenerates you so that you can get up and go again. Okay, well, that's what... Peter's talking about. That's the importance, the centrality of being in the Word of God. I promise you, I guarantee you, that this life, as difficult as it is, will either lead you to absolute despair, or through the Word of God, it will lead you to hope. It will lead you to confidence. It will lead you to the reality that God is for you, not against you. And to the reality that when you leave this planet, you go to be with him. Doesn't get much better than that. So he can say, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. Notice he calls it alive, living, and abiding. It sticks around. Only 3,600 years so far, it just kind of sticks around. It is the living and abiding Word of God. But then what about me? Well, all flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. What did Peter just do? He stated his theological proposition, which is that the Word of God is what has regenerated, reborn us. And then he proved it from the Scripture. He went back and showed that Isaiah says this very same thing, that all flesh is grass, that all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. So he has scriptural authority for what he's already stated. 
And this is that word, the word that abides forever, the word that is regenerating you, the word that makes you want to love the brethren because you understand that that is the purification process for your soul. That very word that is doing all that good for you is the very word, says Peter, which was preached to you. That's what the apostles were carrying around. That's what the apostles took to people and said, let me tell you the word of God. We found the incarnate word of God, the word in flesh. It's Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect embodiment of everything we find in our scripture. And all the scripture was about him and prophesied about him and led to him and all the animal sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood and the law and all of that all leads us to him. We found him. Now, he's the very living incarnate word of God. Therefore, knowing all that about yourself, now go be like this. There's that indicative imperative again. Knowing all that about yourself, now sacrificially love each other. Love each other like brethren. Purify your souls in so doing. And then you're being regenerated being born again by the very imperishable living word of God. You're like grass. You're going to fade away. But the word of God never fades away. It abides forever. And that's the word that was preached to you. And that's all we try to do here at GCA, week in, week out, is preach that word. Because that word can do you so much more good than any philosophy or any clever stories or any jokes, okay, maybe not my jokes, but can do you so much more good than anything I could dream up. Has anybody here ever read a self-help book? You don't have to raise your hand. Thank you. I'm going to write a self-help book called How to Raise Your Hand. Now, you don't have to admit it, but for those of you who have read the self-help books, I'm not going to ask you if they helped, but did they live? Did they abide? Were they continual? Did they, did, sometimes a self-help book can help you for a week, a month, get through a particular problem you might be having right then, but does it have the ability to carry you through the rest of your life? No. Does it have the ability to change you from within, regenerate, reborn you? No. Do self-help books have the ability to reveal the reality of God to you? No. Do self-help books give you the confidence that when you launch out into eternity, you're going to be okay with the God of forever? No. No. And yet the Bible does all of that for you because the Bible is fully, sufficiently complete to tell you everything you need to know to get you from here all the way home. And so Peter keeps emphasizing the necessity of the word of God preached. And that's why we do this at GCA. We preach it and we preach it and we preach it and we read it and we read it and we study it and we study it because it is the word of God that can produce Christians. Part of the GCA experiment, I haven't said this in a lot of years, so why not say it again? Part of the GCA experiment was what happens if you get rid of all the trappings of religion and just teach the Bible? What if we get a bunch of people together and we sing to God 
and we study the Bible, what happens? Well, what happens is, yeah, what happens is you get a small church. Yeah, that's true. But what happens is all of you. What happens is people become Christians. That's what happens. When you put the Word of God out, it does two things. It drives the goats out, and it feeds the sheep. And the sheep love the sheep food, and the sheep keep coming back for sheep food. And we don't have to drive the goats out. We just keep pounding the Word of God, and the goats go, no, I don't want that. But, 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 because goats butt. And then, and then out the door they go. Therefore, chapter 2 starts, therefore, after everything he said in chapter 1, and especially the emphasis that he's placed on the word of God and on sincerely loving the brethren in a sacrificial way, after all that, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Did you hear that? Putting aside all the slander, putting aside all the malice, putting aside the hypocrisy, put aside all the envy, put aside all the me firstism, put aside all the I know better than everybody else, put all that aside and like a baby long for the pure milk of the word. I need the word of God. I don't know about you, but I need it. I go a day or two without it, i got to go find a Bible. I, need, I live on it. Like a newborn baby, he says, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say if you have tasted the firmness and severity of the Lord. If you have tasted the way the Lord says, understand me exactly right or I'm going to get y'all. Notice what he said. If you know anything about God, it is the kindness of God that has allowed you to know about him. Uh, let's see if I can think of a human example. There's a bunch of stuff about Micah that you all don't know. Those of us that were in the men's group know the snowmobile story. But see, there's people in the room that don't know that. There's stuff that we don't know about Micah that we're never going to know about Micah unless he tells us. If you impose on him, he may tell you the snowmobile story. But he can choose not to because it's up to him. If he decides to tell you stuff, that, that's just kindness on his part because you can't compel him to tell you anything about himself. And that's just Micah, who's wormy grass grasshopper. That's just Micah. You don't think that God has every right in his superior splendor, encased in a light that no man approaches, in his absolute rightness and justice and holiness? You can't imagine that any man could come well, we just read it from Isaiah, and demand from him that they've got some questions and he had better answer them. Nobody's ever been his counselor or informed him or demanded answers of him. Job tried it. That didn't go well. 
And so we know for a fact that if you know anything about God, it's only because God deigned to tell you about himself. And even then, though he wrote it in the word that everybody on the planet has access to, he also has to enlighten you to understand it. And if he's done that for you, that's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Kindness and love and long-suffering and patience. That is just grace on grace. So again, he can say, since that is the kindness of God, since that is the love and the grace of God, what kind of people should you be? Should you be mean? Should you call people down? Should you openly condemn people? No, you're supposed to be long-suffering and kind, and you're supposed to reflect the love of God in the way that you deal with each other. So therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Oh, he's going to go back into Isaiah again. He's going to go back into the Psalms again. He's going to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is the very Christ that was to come. He's going to show the way that he was prophesied and predicted. And that's going to be the rest of chapter 2. That's where we're going to start next week. And we're going to see Peter's argument for the reality that just because Jesus died on a cross, just because he was rejected of men, that in no way means that he's not the Messiah because it was predicted through Isaiah and through the Psalms that he was going to be rejected. So, of course, he was rejected. God said he was going to be rejected. So, the very fact that men reject him just proves the Bible. Every once in a while, I run across those folks who just reject Christianity and reject the Bible. And they think that because in their own human intellect, because they reject it, that that somehow proves us wrong. The fact of the matter is, the Bible said you'd be like that. So when you're busy rejecting the Bible, you're proving the Bible's true. It's like a built-in catch-22. If you deny the Word of God, the Word of God said you were going to deny it. And God predicted through all his prophets that when he sent his son to the planet, that his son was going to be rejected of men. And that's exactly what happened. And it is further proof that Jesus absolutely is the Messiah to come. He is the Christ. So that's the argument we'll get into next week. But today I just wanted to concentrate on the importance, the necessity, the centrality of the word, and that you have to preach the truth in love. Did that come through? Yes. Okay, I could have said that and saved you about an hour. But I hope that you saw it from the word and not just from Jim. Questions? Anybody got anything? Should I start designing the wormy grass grasshopper t-shirts? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Wormy grass grasshoppers. Okay, I'll get yeah, one. that's going to replace plank of wood. Okay. <laughs> we'll wear it proudly. I'm a wormy grass grasshopper. And then if you wear it proudly, you have to give the shirt back. I got the yeah, okay. <laughs> Any questions? All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.